Let's pray together for just a moment. Our Father, we come to you this morning asking you as we have sung these glorious truths, we're asking you, Lord, to apply them deeply to our hearts, not just through song, but now, Lord, through the Word of God, to make us more like Christ, to help us to do what Peter commanded, that we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as our knowledge of you grows, Lord, let our ability to be Christ-like grow as well. We pray, Lord, that you would take these words that are spoken this morning and that you would make us more like our Savior, all for his sake, to bring him honor and glory. In his name we pray, amen. He gets us, all of us. The groans tell me you know that that is not true. And yet that's a message that's growing in popularity. The broadcast of the Super Bowl a week ago highlighted ads by the He Gets Us organization. Their own hype video, even prior to the Super Bowl, describes the He Gets Us organization, quote, as a multi-year national campaign to raise the respect and relevance of Jesus in our culture. And their motto is, He Gets Us, All of Us. The ads that played during the Super Bowl highlighted messages like love your enemies because that's what Jesus does. Be childlike because that's an answer in and of itself apparently. And quote, Jesus invited everyone to sit at his table. More extended teaching from the He Gets Us organization says this, quote, Jesus was never cynical about people. He always loved, always forgave. And that sounds wonderful. Just as a matter of interest, the Jesus, they say, was never cynical about people, said to the Pharisees of Israel, you brood of vipers, how can you be an evil, speak what is good? The Jesus, they say, always loved, told those who would not receive him, where I am going, you cannot come. And the Jesus, they say, always forgave, said to the same people, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. In other words, I will not forgive you. The He Gets Us movement is nothing more than another false gospel which characterizes Christ in the wrong way and distorts the gospel. And the primary way that the gospel is distorted is to completely leave out the all-important notion of sin and the mourning and the sorrow that's associated with sin. That's completely ignored. That's what I'd like to look at this morning. the, The mourning, the sorrow... That's our topic, and we find this in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes that we're in. We've begun the Beatitudes in our mini-series, Joy in the Lord, and it shows the ironic nature of the Christian life. Today we're going to address joy for the sorrowful. Joy for the sorrowful. I do want to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap of a false gospel, because what we're going to see isn't a, a general teaching that God somehow feels sorry for everyone who's in pain of any kind, and therefore anyone and everyone who feels any sort of sorrow can find emotional relief by believing in this sort of Jesus who's nothing more than the world's nicest guy. Instead, what we're going to see is the irony and the paradox of the Christian life. We saw this last time in that the only ones who will receive the kingdom of heaven, the only ones who will inherit the kingdom of God, are the ones who are poor in spirit, who are downcast, who are downtrodden. And that brings us to the next beatitude in verse 4 of Matthew 5. Jesus continues, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the clear teaching that blessing comes through mourning, through sorrow. This particular word, For those who mourn means to be sad, it means to grieve, it means to lament, to deep heartfelt sadness. The Old Testament equivalent to this word means to be dried out, to be parched, to be withered with your grief and with your weeping. We all understand the basic concept of mourning. We we understand the experience of sadness at the loss of someone you love, for example, Genesis 23.2 says that when his wife Sarah died, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. We understand that. 
when Jacob was told the lie from his own sons that Joseph had been killed. Genesis 37, 34 says that Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. We understand that. Is that the mourning that Jesus is speaking of, though? Primarily not. Is it simply that God will make you happy when you experience the emotion of grief and sadness? Primarily not. There are bigger issues at stake, issues concerning a person's spiritual condition. Now, we could categorize mourning into many different reasons or kinds, but for the sake of staying consistent with the fact that the Beatitudes deal with the whole life of the Christian, from the, from the uh, initial saving faith all the way to the end of life, and to stay consistent with that, I want to narrow down our focus to two major categories of sorrow and work through how these paradoxically now lead to joy. Two categories of sorrow, and we'll spend quite a bit of time in each one, The first category is sorrow because of depravity. And the second category, sorrow because of defiance. Sorrow because of depravity and sorrow because of defiance. The first major category, sorrow because of depravity. Now we've said that in part the function of the Beatitudes is to reveal the inner heart attitude that accompanies salvation, the genuine, humble, the believer in Christ. I don't know if this particular beatitude is the most difficult to understand. I would say it is among the most misunderstood, though, the most misapplied. The average Christian sees the word mourn and thinks to life circumstances that God gives comfort to Christians when they're sad, and he does. But the beatitudes are miles higher than this spiritually. And I think the one reason this beatitude is so often misunderstood is illustrated by the He Gets Me movement, which is promoting the classic error of a watered-down, or in their case, non-existent doctrine of sin. If you rightly understand sin, if you rightly understand the affront to God that sin is, the offense to God, the, the source of grief to a holy God, then you also understand that the only response to your sin is to mourn, to have sorrow, to have grief, The Apostle Paul wrote of this sort of mourning in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world brings about death. Oh, two different kinds of sorrow, two different kinds of mourning. What is the sorrow of the world? The sorrow of the world is sorrow that bad things are happening to me because because of sin or because of other people, but bad things are happening to me and I have sorrow But that's a me-centered sorrow. He gets me. That's not a God-centered sorrow at how you've offended a great and beautiful and majestic and pure and perfect and holy God. Godly sorrow is sorrow and grief concerning the broken status of your standing before God that you have offended the single holy God Paul is being crystal clear here. Without sorrow over sin, you cannot be saved. God will not forgive you. It is necessary. The price Jesus paid on the cross for sin debts against God will not be applied to you. Now this is, as you remember, why the Sermon on the Mount begins with negatives. That you have to experience conviction before you can experience conversion. But once you've mourned your sin, once you've been steeped in the godly sorrow that accompanies salvation... Now and only now is true Christian joy possible. That's the paradox. That's the irony. The pattern of salvation in Scripture is conviction and sorrow followed by conversion and joy. Isaiah 118, God says, Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Conviction and sorrow followed by conversion and joy. Paul described the hopelessness of trying to be righteous outside of Christ in Romans 7, beginning in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Conviction and sorrow followed by conversion and joy. That's always the pattern. You cannot start with, he gets us or he gets me. And the greater your mourning and sorrow concerning sin 
then logically the greater your thankfulness and appreciation for the true gospel of Christ, which, by the way, is monergistic, meaning a work of God alone. God alone works. All of God and none of you. And the greater your thankfulness and appreciation for the true gospel of Christ, what do you get more of? Joy. Those are all connected. You mourn in order to be thankful in order to have joy. But here's the question. Jesus said that those who mourn are blessed. Those who mourn sin are blessed. How can those who mourn be blessed? Well, let me give you three circumstances in which mourning sin is entirely appropriate. And it does, in fact, give blessing. The first circumstance in which mourning sin is is appropriate, it is to have an honest view of your own soul. To have an honest view of your own soul. Jesus is abundantly clear that there are false believers. There are unregenerate people who believe with all their heart that they're part of the saved, but they're not. And so here's the test. And I would encourage you to think through this, and I would encourage you to send this test to your unbelieving relatives or the ones that are in this category. The test is, do I truly mourn my own sin? Have I been horrified at sin? Have I been horrified that I've, I've offended a righteous and a just and a holy God? Or do I make excuses? Do I rationalize sin? Do I resist confrontation when devoted believers are, are pleading with me to say I'm walking in a way that's contrary to the faith? When Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, he cried out in horror at his own uncleanness before God and he believed rightly that he was about to die and he believed he deserved it. How many decent people, how many church-going people who secretly never truly were disgusted by their own sin and lied to themselves, how many will be in hell for all eternity having said Christian things, done Christian things, but never having mourned their own sin? They squirreled out of it, they rationalized, they talked themselves out of mourning their own sin this way and that way. There's a second circumstance in which mourning sin is entirely appropriate. And that is to have a proper view of the holiness of God. To have a proper view of the holiness of God. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, he confronted their lack of concern over unrepentant, disgusting sin in their midst. They had a situation where there was a man being sexually immoral with his own stepmother. And Paul rebuked them strongly for not mourning this sin and acting accordingly. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 2, and you have become puffed up And have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. They weren't concerned with the holiness of God. James pulled no punches concerning quarrels and conflicts that were happening right in the church. And he accurately diagnosed all of it as being rooted in pride. And he he gives the answer. He says in James 4, beginning in verse 7, Be subject therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, submit to God, obey him, and stop being prideful. And he calls them double-minded. That they say one thing and do another. They believe one thing and think another. They believe one thing and act a different way. But James takes it a step further. How are you to be subject to God? How are you to resist the devil? How are you to draw near to God? How are you to cleanse your hands? Meaning your actions. How are you to purify your hearts? Here's the how. Verse 9 of James 4, he says, Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. First of all, this is a gospel call to the false believer sitting in the church every week to be miserable, mourn, cry, quit laughing. It's not funny. You're not saved. But he's also being tough on believers who had fallen into a casual attitude towards sin, maybe being a little presumptuous that if they're saved, they can act however they want. But James is eager that we see sin for what it truly is. It's a serious, serious breach of covenant loyalty to God. And if that breach isn't dealt with mourning that sin and confessing that sin and working on that sin, 
And this can lead to disaster. It can be extremely painful in its discipline from the Lord. Now, you know your Bibles, and so you might be thinking, well, James's command that we be miserable and mourn and cry sounds like the opposite of Paul's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, right? Which one is it? It's Philippians 4, 4, but listen carefully. The joy that's speaking of here by Paul is the joy of salvation, of realizing that your sins are forgiven in Christ. But the Christian who's pridefully unrepentant and doesn't continue in the habit of humbly mourning sin and dealing with sin has no access to true joy. You can only rejoice in the Lord if you're mourning your sin first. Does that make sense? Cannot skip one Instead, you get superficial, fleeting, fake happiness because ignoring sin never causes joy. I've urged this before, but if if you struggle with joy, if you struggle with, with a sense of blessedness in the Lord, look in the mirror and take a long, hard look and ask those around you, what areas of sin do you see that are, are, are a hurdle for me? Mourning sin leads to joy because now your relationship with the Lord is right and is pure. You experience the cleansing and forgiveness and the peace given by the Holy Spirit. In the church in Corinth and to the believers that James is writing to, they weren't mourning sin, they weren't dealing with it. Here's a third appropriate use of mourning. That is to have a sober view of the end of life. To have a sober view of the end of life. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, Better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of all mankind. And the living puts this in his heart. Two verses later, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the heart of fools is in the house of gladness. In other words, there's spiritual gain in taking time to seriously contemplate the day of your own death. It, it reminds you that sin is serious And that though you're saved, you still must bear the consequences of sin in your body. You must shed this sinful mortal body. And for the lost person, contemplating death is imperative. It's it's vital to create this urgency to be made right with God by repenting of sin. Because it's given to man to die once and then to face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 By the way, that's why funerals are so much more spiritually valuable than weddings. Because funerals force people to face eternity. Weddings just force people to give gifts they didn't want to give. (laughs) Mourning is very useful. It is a blessing to us. It, It puts us in a right place spiritually. Two categories of sorrow. Sorrow because of depravity. There's a second category of sorrow. Sorrow because of defiance. Sorrow because of defiance. We live in a world characterized by defiance against God. A world which is currently ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And this causes a larger, more global sorrow. A sorrow because of the defiance of the world. The consequences of the world's sinfulness. The consequences of this defiance. This global brokenness in the world that just makes everything painful. Let me give you some examples of how we have sorrow because of living in a defiant world. We have sorrow over broken bodies. Sorrow over broken bodies. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Paul is speaking of our mortal bodies as our earthly tent. Listen to his sorrow. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And the older you get, the more literal that is. You get out of bed and what do you do? You groan. Sorrow over broken bodies. How about sorrow over self-inflicted judgment? Sorrow over self-inflicted judgment. Jesus himself had this sorrow. In Luke 19, beginning of verse 41, he wept over the city of Jerusalem because the judgment and destruction that was coming upon her because of her actions and rejecting her king from heaven. We understand this one, sorrow over injustice. We experience sorrow over injustice every time you read the news. The psalmist in Psalm 42.9 laments the feeling that God is letting the righteous suffer and the unrighteous seem to be winning the day. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
sorrow over broken bodies, over self-inflicted judgment, over injustice. I know you experienced this one, sorrow over the lost among us. Sorrow over the lost among us. The Apostle Paul was devastated that so many Jews didn't know Christ as their true Savior and Messiah. He was crushed by this. He said in Romans 9, beginning in verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We even have sorrow in the church. We have sorrow over the gospel ministry. Sorrow over the gospel ministry. Paul, as a minister of the gospel, he rightly assessed in 2 Corinthians 4 that the ministry of the gospel is a mercy from God. But it's a mercy mixed with heartache and suffering and pain. In 2 Corinthians 6, he gave a litany of the mixture of goodness and pain associated with his own ministry. He said that some regard him as a deceiver while others regard him as a giver of truth. He said that sometimes there's glory in the ministry and sometimes he's dishonored. He said sometimes he's one who's slowly dying yet without the relief of death and going to heaven. He says he's one who has nothing but possesses everything. There's this paradox, this mixture of mercy and heartache. And then the summary, the the encapsulation of this paradox of the gospel ministry, he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that he is sorrowful but always rejoicing. How is that possible? Well, he's rejoicing at souls that are being saved, the sweetness of the fellowship of the church, the relationships which so enriched Paul's life and his ministry, the inclusion that he has in the kingdom of God. So many reasons to rejoice in the ministry. And yet he's sorrowful. Sorrowful at professing believers who harm the church. Sorrowful at the slowness of some to engage in personal sanctification. Sorrow at having to confront sin in this church and in that. Sorrow at having to rebuke the wayward so that perhaps Christ might be formed in them. Sorrow at the experience described in 13, Hebrews 13, 17 of a church leader who groans because of the difficult church members. Jesus understood this sorrow in his own ministry. Isaiah 53 3 describes him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, we wouldn't go so far as to say that Jesus never laughed, but it is significant that there is not a single record of Jesus laughing on this earth. He was a man of sorrows. And so we experience sorrow because of depravity and sorrow because of defiance. And so, where's the joy? Where's the, where's the blessedness? I want to work our way to that, but I just mentioned the sorrow of Jesus in his ministry. His sorrow is on a different level, though, because his sorrow is from the perspective of his eternal nature, the one who was present and active at the very creation of the world, the one who breathed life into Adam himself. And so his sorrow is at a different level. I want to work our way to the joy, work our way to the blessedness by examining a very familiar event that includes the sorrow, the mourning of Jesus, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But we're going to actually look at what happened right before the raising of Lazarus. So turn with me to John chapter 11. And we're going to spend the rest of our time here because the sorrow of Jesus is very instructive for us. John chapter 11, verse 27. Now we're parachuting here into a completely different scene, so let me kind of get you up to speed. Lazarus lives in the city of Bethany. It's just under two miles outside of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. Very close. Jesus has been summoned by Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, to help because Lazarus is very sick. And in order to glorify himself and to increase the faith of his disciples, Jesus waited until Lazarus had actually died before beginning the four-day walk to Bethany. Martha, Lazarus' sister, heard when Jesus was near and went and met him on the road for a private conversation and Jesus taught her and encouraged her to greater faith and through his conversation with her, he elicited really one of our great confessions of faith. John 11, verse 27, this is Martha speaking, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. 
Her faith wasn't completely mature, though, since when Jesus would actually begin the process of raising Lazarus from the dead, Martha was going to protest in no uncertain terms. In verse 39, when Jesus said, remove the stone, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he has been dead four days. Or famously in the King James Version, he stinketh. So her faith isn't complete. There were many mourners and well-wishers that have come from surrounding villages and from Jerusalem to mourn with this well-to-do family, this wealthy family. The scene at the family home is one of, of weeping and consolation and sadness. But now, after her confession of faith, though it was embryonic, though it was small, Jesus has told Martha that he wants to see Mary, the other sister. Mary seems to be a tender soul. She's locked away in the family home, grieving Mary was the one who was so enamored with Christ that she decided helping Martha in the kitchen wasn't worth the time and sat at the feet of Jesus listening to him instead. We saw that in Luke 10, if you ever read there. And and she's one who shortly in John 12 would anoint the feet of Jesus, humbly wiping his feet with her hair in tribute and honor of Christ. A tender soul. And so Jesus has sent for her maybe to get her away from the house where all the mourners and the friends and the family are so that he can have a private conversation with, with her as well. And remember that Jesus fully intends to raise Lazarus from the dead, but Mary doesn't know this yet. And so in verse 28, and when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. How encouraging and comforting it must have been to have Jesus come at this time of grief. Mary was eager to see him. She rose quickly, the text says. She got up quickly. Mary, who was always enthusiastic to see Jesus. And in the verse 30, John gives us a little geographical note. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Martha had met Jesus while he was still walking on the road to Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. They had their conversation on the road, perhaps still walking or maybe resting outside the village. And the intention here was for Jesus and Mary to have a private, intimate meeting that could deal with this grief. But the private meeting was not to be private. Verse 31, Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to cry there. The Jews, many of whom had come from Jerusalem to mourn with the family, they followed Mary to go weep with her. And in front of all the witnesses, in full view of all of these Jews, all those mourners who were following Mary, a tender moment now plays out in verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She fell at his feet. It's a word that literally means to drop to your knees at someone's feet. But this is also a very common word used in the New Testament that speaks of worship, of falling down to worship. And Mary is demonstrating exactly the right thing to do, to fall down in worship and utter powerlessness as a shattered person before Christ. Verse 33 says that she was crying. This is a word that means to wail and to lament. Loudly, it has an emphasis on the sound, on the the sobbing that everyone can hear, those uncontrollable sobs that won't stop. These aren't quiet, private tears. This is all-out, gut-wrenching, uncontrollable sobbing from her very soul. And through her sobbing, she said almost exactly the same thing Martha said in verse 21 when she saw Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This isn't a complaint, it's just a factual observation, because if you think about it, nobody drops dead around Jesus. And what a beautiful and needful act in the midst of her sorrow to collapse in worship at the feet of Jesus. Now this situation may seem a little odd to us, by traditional Jewish custom, even the poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman 
But this wasn't a poor family, so doubtlessly among the friends and family, there were a lot of professional grievers that were there as well. Professional grieving happening. And now Jesus is emotionally moved at the sight of weeping, the weeping of Mary and the mourners, the wailing and the sobbing and the grief that's just all around. In verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her crying and the Jews who came with her also crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And so Jesus asks a question to which he already has the answer. He is sovereign God. Verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. This was a setup to the crowd to have the crowd follow him when he comes to the tomb in verse 38. And in his full and complete humanity in verse 35, Jesus wept. And the emotion now welling up in in him is being expressed right in front of Mary and right in front of all the mourners. And the mourners didn't know exactly what to make of it. They didn't know what to think. Some said that Jesus was weeping because of his great love for Lazarus. Verse 36, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Others, on the other hand, said that Jesus was weeping because he was too late. He, he could have been here. He could have healed Lazarus. Verse 37, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And certainly the compassion and the great empathy of Christ is on display. The sadness around the death of Lazarus is obvious and apparent. Let me read you three commentators who talk about this. One commentator wrote, quote, John means for the modern reader to see a picture here of how much Jesus loves all of us. Another commentator writes, Jesus shed tears out of compassion for the bereaved. It greatly saddened Jesus to see his beloved friends stricken with grief. He was moved by his deep love and compassion for his friends. And the third commentator writes, Christ exemplifies kindness, compassion, and charity. These are warm sentiments which paint a complete and pleasant and kind picture of Christ who gets us. And all of them miss the point. Those particular commentators on John 11.35 are, in order of appearance, Roman Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, and Mormon. And yet their interpretation of Jesus wept agrees with an often typical understanding that Jesus is sad for Mary and for the mourners, or he's sad because Lazarus died. And, And yes, there's certainly an element of sadness involved. But Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead And Jesus is the one who let him die. So why did Jesus weep? Why did Jesus mourn? Why did Jesus have sorrow? In verse 35, the verb wept is different than the one used of Mary and the Jews. And this particular verb is never used anywhere else in John's gospel and never used anywhere else in the New Testament. In other words, it sends a glaring message. Don't misinterpret this. This is not the same weeping as Mary. This is not the same weeping as Martha. This is not the same weeping as the Jews. And so we must understand the weeping of Jesus in light of verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her crying and the Jews who came with her also crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved in the spirit. Now traditionally English translations are a little soft on this. But it literally means to snort. Extra-biblical Greek literature uses the word to describe the snorting of a horse. And it speaks of being indignant. It speaks of emotional outrage and fury. It's used elsewhere in the Gospels to speak of Jesus issuing a stern warning. It's used to speak of him issuing a, a scolding. There's no linguistic justification to soften this word. And Jesus was troubled doesn't mean he was sad. It's a word that means he was perturbed. He was bothered. He was agitated. He was irritated. And so was Jesus, as some have said, openly sobbing with Mary in empathy for her pain? No. The weeping of Mary, the weeping of the mourners, was wailing and sobbing. The word for weeping of Jesus and Jesus alone in all the New Testament simply means to shed tears. There's no emphasis on any sounds that are made. The emphasis is not what's happening on the outside of Jesus. The emphasis is what's happening on the inside. This 
is the shedding of tears quietly and soundlessly of a man about to do battle with an enemy who has provoked not only his grief, but his anger and his indignation. And Jesus is getting ready to do battle with death itself. To win what for any other human being is an unwinnable battle. And so why is Jesus weeping the unrestrained tears, the restrained tears rather, of a strong man about to do battle? The tears of outraged grief and snorting anger and being perturbed and agitated and angered. This is sorrow because of depravity and this is sorrow because of defiance. Let me show you. First, this is sorrow because of depravity. The death of Lazarus and the resulting grief and anguish is a microcosm of the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that mankind has been separated from God because of sin. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. Adam was given the role of co-regent, of co-king of the earth as God's earthly representative. He was to rule and to subdue the earth. And Adam, enjoying complete, unfettered, and unhindered fellowship with his creator, with God, with complete worship that's completely uh, without hindrance, no mediator needed. Adam communed with God in God's earthly throne room, his earthly temple, the Garden of Eden. But because he was acting under God's sole authority, God placed Adam under a law, which was positively the law was to work and subdue the earth, Genesis 2.15, and negatively the law was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both were acts of worship, to obey and to not disobey. But Adam made the choice to disobey and although Eve sinned first, Adam is held responsible as the living representative of God on earth. After Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened to see that they had committed sin. They were ashamed both inwardly and they were ashamed outwardly. Genesis 3 records this. And so the curse of sin is introduced into the world, into humanity, and God curses Adam. He curses our hereditary and spiritual father. God had warned Adam in no uncertain terms that if he disobeyed, then the wages of sin is death. But in God's grace, God sacrificed animals as a temporary atonement instead of instantly executing Adam and Eve. And, and, because the Garden of Eden was the place of God's presence, the temple of God on earth, the place where the tree of life was, Genesis 3.24 says, so he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword was turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. From now on, sin would reign in the world and in mankind, fellowship with God would be from a distance. And only through sacrifice and through a mediator, no more direct fellowship. Adam and Eve had enjoyed life and now they would see death. They enjoyed pleasure, now they had pain. They enjoyed abundant riches of provision, now they would exist with a subsistence survival by constant toil. They had enjoyed perfect fellowship with God and with each other, now they're at odds with God and they're about to be at odds with each other. And now all these millennia later, God the Father in love for those that he would spiritually save has sent Jesus Christ to bridge the gap to to close the distance between himself and mankind. Jesus came as both God and man to be the perfect representative for both parties. Scripture in Genesis presents God as provoked by sin to anger, to righteous rage, to holy indignation. And the consequences for mankind have been devastating. No one since Adam and Eve has communed directly with God, we have need for sacrifice for sin and mediation. We don't just enter into the presence of God. We have to be given permission. We have to be given access by someone else. And Jesus, who saw firsthand the rebellion in the garden and the result of sin and death, yet again firsthand, just like he saw in the garden, he sees the depravity of man, the results of sin at the tomb of Lazarus. And he is furious. Jesus was witnessing the spiritual enemy of mankind, death itself. 
death like sin is the enemy of God. 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is the enemy of God. Death is something against which there must be a battle. And it's a battle we can't win. We've never won that battle. The Bible describes the horror of death in Psalm 18 as ropes which drag you away. In Psalm 18 as a snare or a trap from which you can't be released. In Psalm 37 as a shadow which overwhelms you and, and, and takes you away. Psalm 55 as a terror that falls around you. In Psalm 107 as a gateway through, much you, you, through which you must walk. Ecclesiastes 8, proof of the fact that you're utterly powerless. Hebrews 2.5 says that death is a greedy man who never has enough and must take more. God had created Adam and Eve to live a life that didn't know death, but God had warned what would happen if Adam disobeyed. Death was now introduced into the creation because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Adam, whom Luke 3 calls the Son of God, the first created Son of God, he had to experience death And here, once again, death has taken yet another, Lazarus. And death has caused grief and anguish over something that human beings are not built for. We are not built to be separated from the ones we love by death. We're not set up for that. And on and on it has gone, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, whom God, in a rare, rare move, took to heaven without death. The enemy of death has claimed the lives of, at last estimate, 117 billion people who have lived on this earth. Two have escaped because of the grace of God. Every cemetery, every grave marker, every tomb, every urn with the ashes of the dead shouts that the enemy is winning. The enemy is 117 billion and two. We're helpless in the face of death. And Jesus, snortingly angry, is getting ready to confront this great enemy of mankind. He's getting ready to stand in front of a tomb and reclaim a hostage of death. His weeping isn't just sadness produced by death. It's the upheaval of emotion as he readies himself for battle. As he faces the most dramatic confrontation of his ministry. So Jesus has sorrow because of depravity and all that it's led to. And Jesus also has sorrow because of defiance. He has sorrow because of defiance. In verse 37, the Jews are showing their immature, undeveloped, insufficient faith. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? The tragedy isn't just the death of Lazarus, although that's terrible. The tragedy is the defiant unbelief of those mourners who are right there. And they believe that the consequences of sin are hopelessly going to win the day yet again. They're grieving, as Paul said in First. Thessalonians 4.13, like those who have no hope. They have an insufficient faith. They continually need new proofs. They've seen Jesus working for three years now. In John 4.48, Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now these people who have been watching miracles for three years, they're saying, well, even Jesus can't help us now. Could I remind you of all the things Jesus has been saying up to this point? John 5, 25, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John 5, 28, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. The next verse, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Five verses later, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, Ten verses later, I will raise him up on the last day. How many more times can Jesus say this? What should those people around the tomb of Lazarus been doing? They should have gotten out the popcorn and said, this is going to be good. (laughs) Jesus is right there with them. And they're grieving as if nobody can do anything. And in fact, their belief, their unbelief rather, will arouse the outrage of Jesus again. Verse 38, so Jesus 
again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Deeply moved again at the tomb of Lazarus. And now when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, shortly the clock now begins ticking toward the cross, toward the sacrificial death of Christ. Look ahead at John 11, verse 53. What happened after this? So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Ironically, by calling Lazarus from the grave, Jesus walked to his own grave. Giving Lazarus life brought Jesus to his own death. Because Jesus wasn't only about to save the immediate life of Lazarus by calling him from the grave. He was on his way to to the cross to purchase the everlasting life of Lazarus and all who would place their faith in him. Jesus, the man of sorrows, he spoke of his own impending death with the metaphor of baptism, of being immersed in something. Listen to his sorrow. Listen to his mourning. He said in Luke 12, 50, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is finished. And Jesus wasn't just going to experience physical death in some way that's beyond our ability to grasp, beyond our comprehension. Jesus would bear the wrath of God. Countless eternities of hell somehow compressed into hours of utter darkness and horror and agony and rejection on the cross. And at the cross, All the themes of Genesis 3 all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. All those themes of death and toil and sweat and curse and thorns and the tree going to the dust of the earth. They're all taken on by Christ. Jesus is, as Paul calls him, the second Adam. The one who undoes what Adam did. He receives death. He sweat Great drops of blood in the anguish of his coming death. He took the curse of sin for us. He wore a crown of thorns. He was hanged on a tree until he was dead. And he was placed in the, du- the dust of death. Here's the joy. By his faithfulness, Jesus has undone the sorrow of depravity and he has undone the sorrow of defiance. He's undone it. Mankind lost fellowship with God because of depravity, but now through the mediating work of Christ to bring us into fellowship with God, we're given this amazing invitation in Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Full fellowship. It's been decreed by heaven on our behalf. Psalm 1611 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And this depravity has caused us to have to face the enemy of death. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. And on top of that, Christ has undone all the consequences of sin, the defiance of the world, the defiance of unbelief. It'll all be abolished. Now, here's an odd concept for you. Where do we get our joy? Where do we move beyond the morning? Where do we get our blessedness concerning the defiance of the world? The answer may surprise you. In Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, Messiah himself is speaking. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. Here's where we get comforted and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. The vengeance of God is what comforts the mourning when it concerns the defiance of the world. The martyrs of the great tribulation that is to come will be in heaven. And according to Revelation 6, they're going to be comforted and urged to rest in heaven. Why? Because the vengeance of God is on its way. So listen, if you try to redefine Jesus as he gets us, that reveals that you don't get him. And if you don't mourn your sin, Jesus will get you. He will get you and he will bring you involuntarily before the great white throne. And when you attempt to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many religious things in your name? Didn't we put a Super Bowl ad that says he gets us? 
he will say, I never knew you, depart from me. But for all who come to faith in Christ, mourning your sin and walking through the mourning that is the Christian life, your future is very bright. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. So yes, blessed are those who mourn because it's temporary. It's temporary. Our Father, we thank you for the mourning that you gave us to lead us to the realization of our own sin. We thank you for the mourning that you give us in this life to remind us to repent and to continue our own sanctification. We experience the mourning of the depravity of man all around us, the defiance of the whole world that has just gone completely mad away from truth. And yet we cling to the truth, Lord, that in that final day, There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. If there is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl here who has not mourned his own sin, her own sin, let today be the day. Let them be horrified by how they have neglected to worship God, how they have violated the very purity and and holiness and perfection of holy God, their creator, And let them with trembling knees and trembling mouth bow before you and confess their sins. And for all who do know you, who are experiencing mourning in this life, all at some level because of sin, we thank you for the comfort you give us day by day by your word and by your spirit. But we thank you most of all for the comfort that will come when you avenge yourself on all your enemies and when you wipe away that last final tear from our eyes we look forward to that day let us walk in a way that says that we look forward to that day we love you and thank you in christ's name amen